Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hey, Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's show. My guest today is Ricky Johnson. Um, If you're listening, you will hear my voice, but I'm also holding up a picture of him that he sent me that says it all. From an early age, maybe six, seven, you're talking about a speed demon madman who also through this conversation you learn is one of the most tender-hearted, compassionate people that I've ever talked to. And what I loved about this conversation was him sharing that duality that lives within him. You know, this aggression and I want to be respected, but then also the tenderness as a father and as a husband and also looking for continued self-improvement, whether it's as an athlete or trying to lose weight as, you know, a 50-something-year-old man. But his humanness just rings true in this entire conversation. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Ricky Johnson, welcome to my house. Thank you very, very much. Um, It's always an experience here. Is it? Well, I've been here twice. So it's not like I come here every week. But first time I came here is the first time I got to meet you. And... I mean, we're so connected in so many ways through your cousin, second cousin, John yeah, Fristeragosa. And um, then through Roger Hickey, who I knew, who you did extremists with. That's right. And then through Laird, who I met a long time ago in Hawaii at the Supercross. With and Jerry Lopez, that, right? With Jerry Lopez. And, and so, but we never we never had a chance to meet. And so um, obviously listening to the different shows and stuff that you've done, which I've made this mistake before, you think you know somebody. And so when I met you and I'm like, Hey, like, oh, yeah. like, how's it going, old friend? And, and you're like, hey, great here. You know, it's the first time I met you. Well, I'm, and we're connected through your daughter. Exactly. Through through my daughter, Cassidy, who's uh, just a total advocate for Laird Superfood. Uh, yeah. By the way, you guys are crushing that. Oh, I mean, wow. that and that's how it all started. Uh, you know, the rekindling with, with Laird again. Okay. So let's talk about the Baja. We, we'll get to that, actually. Let's, let's go back. Um, so for people who maybe they're not motorheads, yeah, uh, don't understand fully your world domination that uh, 
you started, how, what, did you turn pro at 14 or 13, 16? 13 years old. You couldn't go national, you couldn't race nationally, okay. but I turned, uh, and if you win so many races in the amateur ranks, they, they force you up. And so I, they turned, want you out of there. Yeah. Because a lot of guys will sandbag and stay in one class and, and then they're just collecting trophies. Okay. But at that age, there wasn't a, a lot of stuff. So I wanted to make money because we didn't have much money. And yeah. so my dad made it very clear that I could keep all my prize money, but I had to buy my own truck when I turned 16. And so I wanted to get in the pro class immediately. So I turned pro at 13, raced Southern California, and then was Southern California champion and, and, and all that kind of stuff, racing against men and waiting to turn 16 when I could run the national circuit. So when you're racing against men as a, you're still a boy, it is, people don't realize like there's contact, it's physical. There's even, I would imagine, uh, intimidation, mm-hmm. like all these things happening none of this impacts you? Like, where do you get that from? Well, I I was very fortunate to have a a strong core of guys. Like if you were like Laird as a surfer growing up in Hawaii, there's a big pecking order. There's Buffy Little Kilana, there's Mm -hmm. Jerry Lopez, there's all these, you know, his father, you know, built Hamilton and all Mm -hmm. that stuff. So when you're around those people, you learn by the school of hard knocks. And Mm -hmm. so when I was a little kid, like at nine, uh, eight, nine years old, racing mini bikes, all the pros bought mini bikes and did a lot of mini bike racing. In fact, Jimmy Johnson's dad, Gary was my mechanic when I was, when I was 10 years old. And that's when Jimmy was born and we, they'd have parties over at their house and they'd have mini bike races. So so they'd throw me out there and these guys would be drinking beer and, and we'd be doing oval racing and banging on, you know, banging on each other and racing. So I raced against men playing around. And so then when I got to kids, I could, I could kind of, I could push them around. Mm-hmm. But then when I turned pro, I, I knew the game. I knew the art, where to hit, when to hit, who who to mess with and who not to mess with. Because, you know, you could still have a guy follow you back to your pits and beat the crap out of you. So you had to learn the game. Mm-hmm. And what I learned is the best revenge is just kick their ass. If you're just faster Finish than first, them, yeah, yeah. Pass, them, pass somebody on the outside is like a power move and just be faster than them. And you, you gain the respect. Wait, let's talk about that for a minute. When to hit, how to hit, who to hit, and who not to hit. <laughs> so you're you're on a track. You guys are flying. There's uh, you know whoop de doos. There's all kinds of things landscape to manage. And when is a time? Let's say it's not at the end of a race, right? Okay. And uh, when is a time where you go? Oh, I'm going to give this guy a little bang. And why would you just for? Uh, establishing dominance or if this person provoked you like, cause I think for the, for people don't realize all that goes in to racing and even all the different kinds of racers and yeah. you know, the different personalities. Mm-hmm. So let's say you're going around the track and you're 13 and you go, Oh, this is a good time to hit that guy. Well, so a lot of times it's you, you race me and I'm going to race you how you race me. So there's certain guys that you know that you can trust, you can race hard with and race close with. Uh, and we'll talk about him later. David Bailey was one of those guys that, mm. but we went through a really dirty stage of, of taking each other out at the knees. I mean, really, it was a pretty vindictive deal. So at a young age, I learned that you don't start crap too early in the race. You know, like first lap, you, you bang on people, you're just on, you're on the move. You know, those, so there's, there could be incidental contact and yep. stuff because there's you're so many guys. You're trying to get guys, away from the group. You're just trying to go. And so yeah. people are a little bit more understanding. And so if you're aggressive at the beginning, you can make a lot of passes if you get a bad start. But what, <clears throat> what you want to do is position yourself. What I always tell people is that you have to control the person before you pass the person. Because if you come into a corner and he short breaks you and you come up the inside, he squares and now he's pissed off and it's very fresh in his mind, he'll hit you on the exit. Right, you're vulnerable. Right, so you have to control them 
put them in a position where they can't do anything to hurt you. And that's typically you're on the inside because if you're turning left and you're on the left, mm-hmm. he can't really hurt you from the outside. Right. But if he's on the inside and you open it up, he can he can clean your clock. Mm-hmm. So that and then typically when it's the last lap, it kind of anything goes because yeah. and, and that's I think the rule amongst racers. But you still there's you know when you're blowing somebody off their bike and, and being a dick or just I'm racing you hard. You know, so right. so sometimes it comes into personalities between the two. We've seen it in Supercross where a lot they get kind of pissed off and they're going back and forth. It always kind of seems the same couple guys end up in, in, in it together because it's personal. Yeah. Let's say you have a racer that maybe they're not as technically sound and maybe even their bike isn't as good as yours. It could be. Yep. Right. Or their crew or whatever. But they're tough and mean. Yeah. Do you leave them alone? Like no. you're scared of them. Like on land. Like let's just say on yeah, land. Yeah. I've been living with no, them no, too no. long. Out off the track, are you like, yeah, I'm just gonna go by him? And well, leave. so I'm, no, because my ego was too big <laughs> okay. to. I was willing to take the ass kicking for it. So I, so an interesting story was racing in 1982. I was eight, 17 years old mm-hmm. racing Supercross. There was a guy Daryl Schultz from Northern California, badass, really tough guy, known for just being a fighter. And so it was in the heat race and I didn't want to go to the semi. I had to pass him, and he's blocking me. And I'm like, the only way I'm gonna get by him is if I hit him but he's probably going to beat the shit out of me in the pit. So I got to be careful. So I hit him and just going as fast as I can, he's trying to take a shot at me. Well, I came off the track, hauled ass through the pits, threw my bike on the stand. I literally ran and hid under the grandstand because I was, I was afraid. You know, I mean, here's a 25-year-old yeah, man. man and I'm 17. I'm like going, I don't get my ass kicked. And so I had this inner dialogue with myself just going, you wuss, get out there, take the beating. It's like, no, don't go take a beating. You're going to get beat up. So then I went out and stood by my bike. And then the next week I started taking jujitsu and stuff like that because I said, I don't want, I never want Mm. the fear of getting my ass kicked. Stop me from racing hard. Mm. You know, not that I want to be a tough guy or go fight people or this or that, but I just didn't want to get my, get whipped really bad. So, so I, so I started doing boxing and wrestling and, and different stuff so that if it did come to it, because like Larry and I were talking in the pool, fights don't last long. I mean, it's like <laughs> one or two hits and then boom, boom. It's not like the movies where right. where it goes on for minutes. It, yeah. it doesn't happen. It's never pretty. So, but still, I just wanted that. That was the thing with my head. Yeah. You know, because I think every man fears getting the shit beat out of them when they're a kid. You know, they, they it's just like the bully is going to get me. And, yeah. and I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let my racing suffer for that. So you... Your dad got you your first bike when you were little, little. Mm-hmm. And um, are your parents alive? No, both passed away. And it, just uh, another story, but just rode, rode my dad's. I rode a solo on a motorcycle all the way across the country and put my dad's ashes in the Atlantic Ocean at uh, Daytona Speed Week. So wow, it was a great closing. Oh. So, you know, like a lot of champions, I think, um, I feel like it's hard for people who come from really great homes. You see it like the Mannings, like you, you know, mm-hmm. you see Peyton Manning them and their dad and their mom, they seem like- Could you imagine- Super wh- well-adjusted <laughs> and like they didn't push him too much, but they just kind of were competitive. But it feels like it usually comes from some kind of turmoil, mm-hmm. some kind of angst or, and so, I mean, without, you know, being against your parents, it was a little bit of an escape. Get yeah. on your bike and mm-hmm. ride. Because yeah. maybe they were fighting their own good fight, Right. And so, you know, what is that freedom? What is that for you? What did riding early represent? Because it's one thing when you become pro and you're winning and you're good at it, 
But really early on, it was probably something else for you. For me, it was one, it was as an escape that I, when I put my helmet on, I was a man. And that's what I love about motorcycles is that when you're a kid, you're a little boy, you put that on and you're riding around and you're a man, you visualize like, so I would visualize my shadow as a multi-time champion. And then as I'm racing the 50 pro class down in Mexico, beat up and stuff like that. And I'm going through the stuff. My shadow is that nine-year-old kid just eager and having a great time. So it, it has a way of helping you back and forth. But for me as a little kid, I struggled really bad in school. I was like, they didn't know about, they didn't talk about dyslexia. They didn't talk about ADD. They just put you in a stupid class, which is humiliating. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's like, and you can't hide that you you don't get it, that you read like shit and you you struggle and you can't spell very well. And, and your friends know this and people know this. And it's like, yeah, but he's, you know, kind of a good looking guy and he can dance well and he's, and he's can race motorcycles, but he's but dumb as a box of rocks. So for me, that was how I could be something because I wasn't the biggest, I wasn't the toughest, I wasn't the best looking, I wasn't all that, but I could be the fastest. And so, so did when you know I, that inside early? Yeah, I just I loved going fast. That was my thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't think I would ever be much as far as a racer, but it just it made me feel good to go fast. And and like it sounds like Ricky Bobby, I love going fast, but it's it's true. And you'll find kids at a young age that they'll they'll get hurt really bad, but that wanting to go fast outweighs everything. It's, it's, and we're going to keep referencing your husband, but him with big waves, it's, there's something that makes you feel like I found my special, my, my special purpose. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, for me, it was that. And then also I had, I had parents that drank and they, were, they would fight and, you know, they had yeah. the problems and stuff like that. They, I couldn't have been loved anymore. So just, I want to be clear about yeah. that is that, yeah. that, that nobody could love me more than my mother, and my father did, but their techniques were a little rough sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so I could get on my motorcycle and I could go ride. I could hear the announcers in my head, oh, Ricky Johnson coming in first place and da, da. And I would, I would just sit and ch chase the rabbit all day long. Well, I've been talking about this for 20 years, the science on like, you know, the, can people accomplish greatness out of like a serene? I know they say love is the most expansive. I, I believe that, but it's just, I feel like most of the people I meet that really are able to perform at such a, incredibly high level. It comes from that stress and that pressure. And so it's interesting because you, you know, you have three children, two sons and a daughter, and I have children. And then you work really hard to make it nice and peaceful in your house. And then you wonder like, did I do them in some weird way a disservice? Yeah. Because they didn't, where do they get that rub from? You know, um, like you have two sons and and then you have Cassidy, your daughter, and only your one son races. It races. They 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 all three ride and they all right. they, they they That's like a family they love it. Right. And like Cassidy was the first one on, last one off. She she rides, she has a triumph up in Bend, Oregon. She rides all the time and and she and she just loves it. And then Jake, our middle son, was more of a ball ball sports guy. And so yeah. we'd have um, what we call jacuzzi talk. It's the best place for to mm -hmm. have a great relationship with your kids. No phones, no that. You sit in the jacuzzi, something about the hot water. They just start telling you things. Yeah. And so Jake was racing and playing lacrosse in, in, in junior high. And he's like, oh, I kind of want to do both. I'm like, well, we can't afford to do both. And also, if you want to be great, you got to be great at one. You know, you're good at both, but what do you want to do? So I posed a question to him and I said, all right, it's Saturday night. Tomorrow is the championship motorcycle race or the championship lacrosse game. What are you going to go to? Mm. And he goes, lacrosse game. I go, you're done racing. 
I said, you can race for fun. And if you want it, we'll, we'll go do it and have a good time. Mm -hmm. But that's your passion. You just said, you just said it. And he didn't take it negatively. And that's when he went to Bridgeton and went on to CSU and won a national championships and, and did, you know, was a captain of the lacrosse team. And now he's got a construction management degree and he's done phenomenal at what he does, Right. but he didn't want to follow my footsteps. And I, and I didn't, that, that didn't bother me a bit because I knew that there's a lot of pain in that footstep mm -hmm. of racing motorcycles. Yeah. And, and then, but your oldest boy. Yeah. He's bit by the bug. So he, he was Luke. He yeah. was, he was the opposite. He was like me. Like I'd watch him read. Like remember the, the, uh, the scene in Forrest Gump when he, when Jenny tells him that's little Forrest mm -hmm. and the uncomfortableness of him. And he goes, is he like me? Basically, mm -hmm. is he stupid like me? And um, she says, no, he's really smart in this and that. And the relief of that. But I watched Luke reading as a little kid and he just couldn't get comfortable and he's moving around and, and he's, he's mixing words. And I'm like, I'm watching myself. And so it's breaking my heart, but he found his way. He wanted to race. And so he went to a school where he went two days a week, mm -hmm. got straight A's, got honors, got did all the different stuff, went out and did, did fab school because he's not a degree guy. So he, he learned how to build race cars. Now he's prepping them. And he's also phenomenal because of that lack of ability of reading and this and that. Mm -hmm. He is one of the most phenomenal instructors I've ever worked with right. because he breaks it down and he's okay. Like we were talking earlier, he gets a little long-winded. So I'm like 10 words or less. Make but, it shorter, yeah. But he cares and yeah. he, he truly, he genuinely cares about his students. And so oh, he's racing. We're racing. I raced for him this past weekend and we've been teammates on what the does same. That, wait, what does that look like when you race for him? So we have a client out of Texas mm -hmm. that I, I did some training with. And then, so then the race was coming. And so Luke had an opportunity to go work on it because he's a better mechanic than me. So he, he spotted for him and coached him mm -hmm. in that. And then Luke has a, uh, builds and pre uh, preps a race truck for Mike uh, Osborne who had quest nutrition. And mm -hmm. so he said, dad, why don't you go drive for me? So I did the second half of the Vegas Torino did the, the last hundred and some miles, 200, 200 and some miles for Mike. And so it was great because I got to go play around. We had lightning storms and thunder and rain. And it was yeah, you said like the last 80 miles, it was wet. It or? was just nuts. It was just hydroplaning and, and it was awesome. <laughs> like some people might not like it, but it reminded me of a really bad short course race, which desert races don't get. Right. But I would much rather have the mud than the, than the dust. So we, we had a blast. What do you, like what, as a parent, and you've, you've obviously come up in an untraditional path as far as like your job, right? Is when, let's say Luke, you go, you recognize like, oh, this kid is going to learn a different way. Cause it isn't about smart and dumb. It's yeah. about speaking their language, yep. I believe. Um, and, and you always find that the people who actually almost that don't know how to conform or can't go down the middle end up being more brilliant or creative or something in some way. It usually seems yeah. As a parent, how do you say, okay, we're going to adapt and we'll figure it out? Because I think that this is a big one for a lot of us, which is the system is only the system if you agree to play by those rules. Right. And the minute you liberate yourself and go, oh, we're going to go a different path, there's something so you feel so good. With, with my kids, uh, my, my dad, like his approach was a little rough, meaning, you know, like you you know, we're drinking and old, throwing, old throwing stuff too. around. Yeah. And, and some yelling and stuff like that. But he did say to me at a very young age, he says, if you want to screw around and you know, I'll buy one bike, we'll go race every now and then he goes, but I've bought three bikes for you. Our, our house is transformed for your racing and this, that if you don't give a shit and you're not going to put the work in, I'm not, I was 10 years old, yeah. but I, but I, but I still like 10, that's a little hard to hear sometimes, but 
it's, it makes sense, you know? And so with my kids, I'm like, I'll support you, whatever you want to do. Cassidy wanted a horse. I said, okay, we'll do this. Oh, we gosh. leased a horse. We did the stuff. You know where her horse was, where, where her horse was from? I don't even want to. Holly Eva, because she <laughs> fell in love with it when we were over with the, with the, with the DeSotos. So I had a horse in California that got a, basically a first class ticket from Hawaii. Um, and Jake with lacrosse, we put him, sent him to Bridgeton, yeah. you know, back East, which was heartbreaking for us. But that's your, that's what you want to do. Then, then go do it. And I think dare to be great if whatever it is. And so with Luke, he's more artistic work with his hands and, and things like that. And he's very animated with his, with what he does and stuff. So there is a too young, but I think it's, it's not out of line for a parent to say to a, to a child, if I'm going to spend the money, you got to put in the dedication yeah. and you cannot stop halfway. Like if we start soccer, we're playing soccer for the year. Yeah. We're not quitting because you just don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Because you might, you're going to learn something from it. Yeah. I think it wasn't like, hey, you have to be a soccer player, but if you commit to this, you're going to finish the season. Yep. And and then at the end of the season, if you go, hey, I hate soccer, well, then we can have that conversation. Exactly. I think that's something. And it's interesting. I have a, a thing I'm going through with, uh, you know, my daughter Reese and she plays tennis. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, it's like, it is the exploration. It's hours and hours and it's been years. Yeah. And I keep, and I once in a while will say to her, when you're checking in with yourself over a longer period of time, if for some reason the the plan needs to change, yeah. that's okay too. Like sometimes it's like someone who maybe goes to law school right? and they go, I don't, I hate this. It's like, I think it's all, it's both, right? It's like learn how to lock and load and then also learn to go, oh, wait, this, you know, you hear this. I know people who uh, went to law school or medical school and they yeah. realized all this work and all these years, but this wasn't going to be my thing. So well, I, I, you know. Oh, I have a friend, Joel Cloud, went through to be an attorney, passed the bar exam, did everything. And now he's selling real estate. Yeah. And the guy looks phenomenal. He, I mean, he looks like he's in, it's ridiculous. He's older than me. He looks like he's in high school yeah. still. So whatever change he decided to make at the time. Yeah. And most people would go, you're an idiot. You spent all that time and all that money to be yeah. an attorney. And he's like, I don't want to be an attorney. I'm enjoying this. Yeah. Because we only get one shot at this. You only get one one swing at Gabby Reese. Yeah. And it's whatever it is, it's it's gonna be hard work. So you're you you turn pro and now you're making money. Mm -hmm. And is sort of like the whole thing become oriented around you and your racing, like your family. Yep. The whole trip gets oriented around you. A person at 16 or whatever may not know, but I, I get from you and I just have seen that you have a sensitivity. Do you feel pre do you feel pressure or do you go, hey, I've got this responsibility? Like what happens to you? Because that's pretty young. Well, I was the baby of the family too. So my sister and I clash. She's four. When a girl is four years older than a, than a boy, I mean, they can whip their ass pretty much until, a long time. until she's six, until he's 16. Yeah. Just because she, you know, she was just a girl from alcohol and didn't mind scrap. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but there was always that feeling because the money was being spent on me. She raced when, when we were young, but mm -hmm. then decided she didn't want to do it. Yeah. But then all the attention became on me because I was getting sponsors and getting and free stuff and I'm winning and yeah. attention. And, and that had to be hard on her. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it had to be really hard on her. She got married at a young age and then annulled and then, you know, had some troubles and stuff like that. And, and so I, I don't look at her like, uh, you know, down my nose. I think, man, it had to be tough, a yeah. tough thing. And, and it's one of the statements that you guys told me the first time we were in the sauna together was imagine what's like being my son. And so I, sometimes I think imagine what's like just being related to me. Yeah. Not that I'm this great superstar or anything like that, but, yeah. but when you're, when you're doing stuff, 
I mean, I kind of got the cool side of celebrity. It's not that big. Like I walk through the airport and I'm maybe one guy because yeah. they're not looking, I'm not around motorcycles and supercross and blah, blah, blah. Right. You're not in that bubble I'm, to get and like have everyone you, notice. Like you walk into an airport, I'm going to spot you for one a mile away. Yeah, it's, it's, it's both though. It's hit or miss. But you know, let's, let's go back. So you're racing. Do you love it when you're doing it? Yes. Okay. So it's what you want to be doing. Absolutely. And now it's your job. And now is it supporting it's supporting the whole group. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how are you continuing to go through the ranks and, and continuing to get better at that age? Like what's making you better? I was always good at just chasing somebody. Like, you know, my dad had a statement, you know, we're not going to go to a national championship somewhere when you can't beat everybody in your own backyard. I'm like, dad, you know, the fastest guys are in Southern California. He's like, well, if you can't beat them all, we're not going to, we we didn't have the money to travel the national circuit, you know, the mini bike national circuit. But I just loved chasing people and racing with people. So anytime I jumped to another class, I would just attack, attack, attack until I win, then go to the next class, the next class. But when you get to the top, it's a crazy deal because now all of a sudden you start reaching these plateaus because you're going from junior to intermediate and then a couple races winning intermediate, then going to local pro and winning. That's one thing. But mm-hmm. when you go to a, a level where you're with the best, there's the best guys on the planet mm-hmm. are here. That's when it becomes a little wicked and you start to fear. Maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. Yeah. And maybe this is all I'm going to do. But then you you get creative. You start finding. So I I was able to look at myself and go, where was my weak point? Even if I had a win, what was my cornering good? Was my starts off a little bit? Was I jumping? Was I kind of out of shape? Was it whatever it was? When you say you mean physically out of shape? Yeah. Asking your seventeen year old self, like, am I out of shape? No, because actually not that age. Because I I I, I never got tired. I mean, I would do 45 minute motos. I could just go and like the older guys that I raced against are like, how the hell do you do it? I'm like, well, I ride a single speed bicycle to school, you know, standing up the whole time, you know? So, and I, and I just ran and you run everywhere and I would go race all day and want to play racquetball in the afternoon. I just like Larry, just nonstop, just go, 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 go. And so, but then when you get about 20 some years old, then all of a sudden you start to go, wait a minute, I'm getting tired. Yeah. What is this feeling? You know, because you don't, your, your testosterone is not just kicking at full speed. And, you know, it's kind of, it's really sad <laughs> that, that it's designed that way, but it's true. And so, so for you, me, we was, couldn't have a planet of men running around pulsating full of testosterone, like a 16 year old boy. Okay. There'd be fights everywhere. It would just wouldn't one. be good. <laughs> it just wouldn't be good. Nature knows what it's doing. Exactly. No, I, no I, so, I okay. So you, you, you're, you're in the elite, you're with the best, you're maybe early twenties mm-hmm. and, um, now you're considering your fitness. You know, I was I was doing some uh, research about how you were you're basically on the team with all your enemies, mm-hmm. right? Yep. I mean, meaning the other best riders. Yeah, the, the guys that are fighting for your money. Right, and so and they're running together, their friends, their yep. buddies, ha yep. ha ha. You know, like, and you're not. Yep. So just kind of walk me through how you navigate that because I think people go through so many things in their life and we we hit these plateaus or these roadblocks and then it's like where do we find it within us and in the external world what we need to continue to to grow or get better For me there was nobody that wanted to win more on Sunday or Saturday night than me like no one would commit harder but there was guys that would commit harder from Monday to Friday. 
So if I could go eat Taco Bell all week and sleep in and go surf and hang out and go dance with my buddies and, and race some trouble mm-hmm. and go race and win, I'd have done it. There would have been no, no doubt about it. But I was fortunate enough when I went to Honda, I got Brian Lunnis as a mechanic who was just, honestly, he was a prick. He, 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 <laughs> so the, the guys that I didn't like was, was Donnie Hanson. I, I mean, not like him. Uh, you're racing enemies. Like I get it. Donnie Hanson and Bob Hanna, mm-hmm. who was their mechanic. Brian Lunnis. So when when Bob Hanna left Honda, I got Brian Lunnis. And, and like we've butted heads multiple times on starting lines or after but, races. But what does that mean? Like, is it because he's the other guy's guy? Like, yeah. what, what are you fighting with the mechanic for? Because, of the he, other because, guy? because I was kind of a little bit of a bully or whatever. And he was standing up for his guy, <laughs> okay. you know? And so we, we got some, you know, FU competitions back and forth on starting line because they said we could go on the other side of the gate. And he said, blah, blah, blah. And so, so anyways, we, <laughs> we had that. But what Brian did is he made you feel like a t- like Batman and Robin, like mm. it's it's us against the world, and he would just go, just you gotta hate those guys because he really got that from Hannah. Han- Bob Hannah was so good at hating everybody and just like it was all about him, and so Brian instilled that in me, and but and Brian gave me the commitment no matter what. Like I had a problem, even if you were wrong, he had your back. Yes, but then as then when you got in private, he'd let you know you're wrong. Okay. But but he would grab a hammer and swing needed to be because he wasn't a very masculine guy. Um, and he and he pushed me. And so he would go riding bicycles with me. He would go out there and, and give me lap times and just just really push me to be better and better and better. And, and that helped out quite a bit. And especially because I had Johnny Omar and David Bailey. They were teammates and best friends and all the different stuff. So it was kind of us against them, mm-hmm. even though we did share some bike stuff. But, did they they didn't have the same mechanic, did they? No, they had they had their own mechanics. But, but but why were they so friendly in training and stuff together? What is that? It was just the timing. And then David came from West Virginia or from Virginia or West Virginia. Yeah, West Virginia to California mm. and moved to Simi Simi Valley is where the track haunted track was. And Johnny lived there. So so they just kind of and uh Johnny was on 125s, David was on 500. They raced against each other in Supercross, but they were Far kind, enough apart. Exactly. And so so that they could be like best friends. I mean, they hung out all the time. I mean, did everything together. And so that was who I was up against. Yeah, on your team. Yeah, on my team. That's a far out. Talk to me a little bit. I mean, for anyone who uh, obviously follows any kind of motocross, they you know that your 1986 yeah. against David Bailey mm-hmm. is still being called one of the you know greatest races of all. Talk to me about about that day a little bit. So that day, um, I got to back up a little bit before. So yeah, we have well, that's go- true. You've had a history before that day. Well, no, no, but the, 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 we have these warm up races in Southern California called the Golden State Nationals. Mm-hmm. So we would go there, and the very first race, I was sick as a dog. I had pneumonia, and so and pneumonia is the flu times a hundred. Yeah, and so I was sick, and so I only had about a week to really. And I was kind of short on breath because, you know, it's such a respiratory problem. I'm not blaming anything. David beat me straight out. Yeah. So the race comes and I win my heat. David wins his heat. And then Jeff Ward, who's the defending champion, his his weird his chain comes off and he doesn't take the start. So if you don't take the start, then you can't go in the semi. So Jeff Ward, the defending champion, is out of the race. And so now you have David and I. Johnny O'Meara's got a slight ankle injury, so he's not quite 100%. Mm-hmm. So I said to David right at the start... Hey, we're both fast. Um, probably more likely one of us is going to win. I said, I won't take you out, but I'm I'm going to race you as hard as I can. Yeah. And he goes, deal. So we shook hands. And so I got the start, knocked down Scott Burnworth, 
a guy that I grew up with. In fact, he's that me on a mini bike. We grew up there together. And so when I came to lap him and he said it, you know, he kind of, you know, messed with me a little bit. Mm -hmm. By the time David got to me, I was anaerobic. I was <sighs> just, I was completely gassed and smoked. And so the, the, the fight began and, and David would finesse me and I bowled my way through. He'd finesse me and I bowled my way through. And so this went back and forth, but the last, I think three laps of the race, I was just completely gassed. And so I was disgusted with myself that I lost because of me, not because of the bike, yeah. not because of the, my tire, not because of my anything. I lost because I wasn't strong enough. And I said, I won't, uh, that was the breaking point for me. I'm like, I'm paid a lot of money to be the guy mm -hmm. and I can't let everybody down. So from that point on, I went on to win the championship and, you know, yeah, David beat me, we went back and forth. And were Jeff, you about 22? Yeah, 20, 22 years old. And so that was when we had a, a great deal. And then, I mean, crazy, the beginning of the next year, I have an ankle uh, surgery. I have a bone spur and stuff. And so I don't go to a Golden State race and David gets paralyzed. So now Johnny O'Mara has gone to Suzuki David Bailey gets paralyzed because we were the two one and two guys. He won the 500 championship and I won the 250 and Supercross. So we traded back and forth on everything. And now he's now the smoothest guy in the in the in the sport gets paralyzed. And so it really makes you like, oof. Man, yeah. because that's the last person. I mean, there's I would expect I, me to get paralyzed before him because right, I was the way more crazy. he rode was Yes. It's completely I watched impeccable. this one sequence where the two of you are together. And like you're doing all this like jumping and bullying, down pounding, and he just looks like he's sort of skipping along the top. Yep. It's interesting how people can approach the same exact line and do it so differently. Well, and so we, and we joke about this is that you know he was Muhammad Ali and I was Joe Frazier, you know the boxer brawler. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing was is his dad says you need to be more like Rick, and my dad says you need to be more like David. You know. Yeah, of course. Leave it to dads to talk yeah. like that. And so, so I'm like. What do you mean? I, I thought I did pretty good this year, <laughs> but really <laughs> not good enough. So, were you having a little bit of fun up until twenty two ish? Were you? I mean, overall, were you? Were you at all? You know, going out and having a good time? Would you say? Um, any? No, no, no. I, uh, I smoked pot when I was in mm. junior high, and it it made me feel like I had a concussion. Oh yeah. So it scared the crap out of me. You know, so it's like it, it wasn't a good feeling for me because like I had a concussion. I think when I was 10 years old, another rider hit me and, you know, mm -hmm. you know, the seeing the stars and then the dreamy feeling and all that. So, uh, you know, peer pressure, come on, we're going to smoke yeah. weed and this, that. And I smoked weed and it just like it scared me to death and I didn't like it. So I really didn't go towards that. And then as well as you know, having parents that, that drank quite a bit and then having a lot of friends. I mean, I had a lot of friends that were really talented, get into to you know, yeah. started out with pot and then drink and then coke and then meth and blah blah blah, just down the down a really dark road. And guys that were so talented and so good, but they let a good feeling yeah. ruin their life. And so for me, it was easy to walk away and, and to be around it and have people go, "Hey, man, you want to party?" I'm like, "No, I'm good." Yeah. You know, I'll go dancing and we'll go you know, have have fun and laugh and that. But I, it didn't it didn't really strike me. And then when I turned 21, I remember I was like. I'd, I'd broken a, I got hit in one of the last races and broke a finger. So I couldn't ride for, for a little bit. And I started having a beer with dinner. Just, mm -hmm. Cause that's what grownups do. Right. Yeah. You're and 21. So, yeah. So <laughs> I'll never forget. So I'm go to this fish place. I'm going to go meet my friends and stuff. And I sit down and I'm like, yeah, all the, what was, I don't know what it was, some stupid beer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I took a drink of it and I'm like, I don't even want this. Like, why am I doing this? You know? Mm -hmm. And I, and I 
once again, by myself, I'm like, can I have, you know, I'd rather have a Coke, yeah. you know, just, just something with sugar and tastes good to me and stuff like that. I'm like, can I have a Coke and some water? And it's like, why am I drinking? Cause I think I have to, yeah. you know, and I don't really, I don't really dig the taste of beer and it makes me bloated and blah, blah, blah. So why do it? It's cause it's cool. And so, so that was a, a good turning point for me as well, just to go, I don't need, I don't need that to have fun. So you're always hearing about the importance of sleep. I mean, this is kind of one-on-one stuff. And there's a term like sleep hygiene. So how cool is your room? Like not looking at bright lights before you go to bed. But what about your mattress? And sometimes I think we all keep our mattresses a little too long. It's, you know, it's a big deal. But about three, four weeks ago, my husband's like, hey, we have to get a new mattress. And right at that time, I was approached by an incredible company called Avocado Green Mattress. And I said to them, listen, I need a mattress and I really like to use the things before I talk about them. And even though they always have great offers for the listeners, I still think it's important to have a personal connection with the products. So they sent me a mattress. It's called the Avocado Latex Mattress. Let me tell you about this mattress. Well, let me tell you about this company. This mattress, the Latex Mattress, is made exclusively with natural organic materials and It's entirely biodegradable. That's right. So the latex mattress, entirely biodegradable. The company itself is a B Corp. It's a certified B Corporation. Very, very hard to do. It's climate neutral certified. So what does that mean? They've got a net zero carbon emission. So whether it's their farms in India that they co-own or their California factory or just getting it to your home, all of that they have a net zero carbon emission. Um, they're members of the 1% for the planet, so they'll donate uh, part of their revenue to environmental nonprofits. And Avocado Mattress is showing us how to practice conscious business and create beautiful products. So what Avocado Mattress is doing is they're showing us, hey, we can do something that's great for you, the consumer, me and you, but also good for the planet. And there's something about that for me that just feels not only necessary um, and modern, uh, but just really important. And it's just a great example. So they've got tons of other products. My mattress is very firm and they have a great offer if you're interested in the mattress I'm on, the Avocado Latex Mattress. They'll give you $200 if you just use the code Gabby Reese at checkout. So you can head to their website and see all their incredible products. They even have uh, furniture and things like that avocadogreenmattress.com. Forget, mattress has a double T and a double S, so that's avocadogreenmattress.com. So I guess I'm going to be like the sleep queen, and it's been, you know, my Achilles heels to get good sleep, just quiet my brain and just get into that deep, restful sleep. And that is why I'm really happy to share with you once again my experience with Blue Blocks glasses. I got some Uh, when I started really trying to avoid, as the sun went down, brighter lights in my house because I know that it impacts your sleep. So I started wearing them. They're really comfortable. They've got 20, you know, frame styles. They can do it in prescription, non-prescription, even readers. Um, If you've got a face that's hard to fit, they can make just about any pair of glasses into custom blue blockers. So it's really whatever you want. I've got my kids on them because they're looking at their screens all day long. And so they can find something they like, I can. And we all hear about like some of the, the bad stuff about blue light, about your eyes and digital eye strain. I know sometimes I'm just blurry eyed in general after looking at the screen all day. Um, some people complain about headaches and things like that. So what I really appreciate about this company is the founders were not happy with the quality and lack of science behind some of the blue light blocking glasses brands that were out there. So they created their own. They've got 
you know, incredible uh, blue boxes backed by the latest science, and they're made under optics laboratory conditions all the way in Australia. So this is another example of, you know, like we're not happy without the, what's out there. We can do it better. And this is something we're all going through. Technology's not going anywhere. We all stay up, you know, too late under bright lights. And this is just a way to help us get into, you know, maybe some better sleep, better recovery, get some energy back. And so they've got a beautiful offer for you today. You can go to Blue Blocks. Dot com And if you use the code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y, for 15% off your purchase, and remember, they're all the way in Australia, they're offering you free shipping. So head to Blue Blocks today, look at their beautiful style, learn more about Blue Light and their technology in all of their glasses. Get 15% off at checkout if you just punch in Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y, and get your free shipping worldwide. Hi, I'm Claire Mazur. And I'm Erica Cerullo. We're the co-hosts of a podcast called A Thing or Two. It comes out every Monday and the basic premise is this. We share all the stuff we think more people should know about. So that's apps, recipes, books, the nationwide haagen vanilla bean shortage that nobody else was talking about. Our no one. No one. <laughs> our preferred vacuum brands of which we have multiples and critical explorations of our unique approaches to paper towel usage. Listen, we think you're going to like it. A lot of people do. And who's to say you'll be any different? Listen and subscribe wherever it is you listen and subscribe to podcasts. Now, this is early to be a 23-year-old, you know, kicking ass champion male and then consciously making an effort to manifest someone to come into your life. Yeah. Why did you do that? Um, cause I, <laughs> I like girls a little too much. Like that was, that was my vice was, you know, because once again, being the stupid guy at school and this, that, but if you were the guy that dated a lot of girls and stuff, you were the cool guy as well. Yeah. And so, but for me, I just, I was going through, uh, uh, religious, bless, spiritual thing. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't feel right. Like it was fun as far as, yeah, you know, go out and date a bunch of girls, blah, blah. But I really didn't like that. And then also at the time I was, I couldn't sleep in my own bed. Like I would just sleep on the couch and stuff like that. It just, it was like, I was restless. So I would turn the TV on and, and fall asleep on the couch. And that was my thing. And I was like, I want somebody to share my life with. I talked to a friend of mine who was a chiropractor and stuff. He says, well, have you written it down? I'm like, no. He goes, no, write down everything that you want in a woman. I mean, I was like, oh, about five, <laughs> <Large>. six. <laughs> I didn't say large boobs. <laughs> I, I could have said eyes. You yeah, know. <laughs> big eyes. Um, I'm like, five, six, blonde, athletic, likes to laugh, da, da, just like, yeah. just, just the, yeah. the, the, what I wanted, loves to cook and all the different things. And sure enough, like I was dating a, a few girls and stuff. And I just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. It's just the lying is killing me. I just. Oh, you I, mean like having different, many multiple girls? Yeah, and stuff? And it's it's like, stressful. Oh God. It's like, so and, stressful. And, and you're lying all the time. It's yeah. just like, it's like going, okay. Think every time someone asks you a question, you're like, was I at Fashion Valley? I don't know. You know? So, so I'm like, I'm just going to focus on my racing and, and get down to business. And mm -hmm. sure enough, that's when I met my wife, Stephanie. And that was, we're going to be on uh, 30 years. So I, uh, I, you know, I, I told you, I, I talked to Cassidy, but I, I get, I get the feeling, um, that the women in your family, cause in a way sometimes too, like, and this, again, this is not about a knock on our parents or whatever, but sometimes if our parents can't be there for us the way we need them to be, which I, I think most parents probably can't, 
Yeah. I, I think it's like, that's the whole point. You move out, you create your own life. I think that's almost natural, but that then certain people will figure out the way to actually create the family that does support them and, and love them and understand them and protect them. And it feels like not uh, first starting with Stephanie and then even adding Cassidy in there as like these women that see you for exactly who you are, which is, yeah, okay, you're a badass and you like to go fast and you're aggressive, but really, you know, a lot of people who are geared like that, they are, there. there's a pureness, yeah. like a sweetness and a kindness. And to see the women of the family kind of come up and be like, oh, that's cool, but we're going to protect this person. Yeah. So it feels like you, you found, you managed to find her and then also create your daughter. Well, there, these yeah. women that kind of really, I think, get you and then want to look out for you. I do very well with, I don't mean this in a, in a weird way, but with women, with therapists, with doctors, with whatever. I, I think it's because I was such a mama's boy. Like I, I literally sat in a chair with my mom watching TV until I was 16. Like I would come in like, like your dog wants yeah. to squeeze <laughs> in with you. I would want to sit with, I want to sit with my mom, you know, and have her twiddle my ear or whatever. Mm -hmm. She knew what didn't irritate me you know, or play with my toes or whatever the thing might be. It's, I mean, it sounds kind of weird. Yeah. She didn't do that at 16, but I loved her energy and I, and, and I like female energy and that's what I get from Cassidy and from Steph. Yeah. But one of the things that I was really attracted to Steph is the first time I went to her house, also I look out in the backyard and her mom and dad are outside, you know, sitting and talking and having happy hour and having like a gin and tonic or whatever, yeah. Just, you know, glass of wine, whatever it might be. It's like yeah. five o'clock and I'm like, oh shit, are your parents fighting? She goes, what? I go, what are they doing outside? She goes, they're, they're talking. I go, cause I'm like, those time my parents went outside is because they didn't want to break they're furniture. They're bringing it outside. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they took it outside. I'm like, really? And so then just the communication of how Skip and Kathy were together mm -hmm. and, and he, you know, he called a bird and this and that, and they would cook together and do all the different stuff. And, and I'm like, I want that. That and and so I would go over there and, and Steph would make me dinner and and I loved her mom. Her mom Kathy has passed, but she was just she she and she loved me too. You know what I mean? And so I'm like, this is a girl that comes from a, of with with parents that love each other and aren't mm -hmm. afraid to show affection and and have fun and laugh and do all the different stuff. So I thought this is a good good opportunity because she was young. She was 17 when we started yeah. dating. No, I I know. <laughs> And you were like, what, 23? I was like 45. <laughs> <laughs> I was a school bus driver. That's exactly the amount of years that Laird and I are apart. I was just a lot older. I, what do you think she saw in you that she, because obviously she's a smart person, that she was like, okay. Well, we started off because she ended a relationship. And so did I. So like we started You mean off, you broke up with your boyfriends and girlfriends so you could no, be together? No, no, oh. no. See, that was like a major taboo for me. So when I, the very first time I saw her, she was with somebody. Okay. And then I didn't see her for three months. And then when I met her, like officially met her, we were down at the river. And I said, oh, you date so-and-so. She goes, no, we broke up about three months ago. Mm. I'm like, really? So I'm like, well, I didn't want to say, well, I was a tramp and just, just closed. <laughs> trying to clean up my eyes. Trying to clean up a bunch of crap over here. But I said, let's be friends, you know? And so. Oh, brother. No, she bought that? No, because I, did, I didn't try to jump in her pants the first yeah, night. Yeah. I didn't. Okay. I, you can, we'll, we'll no, I here. believe you. I just love the long game. You were playing the long game. Way I was. To go. Uh -huh. Well, because I'm going, I want to know that I, that I, that I, 
I like somebody. Mm-hmm. And it's not because she was she was really hot. I mean, yeah. she had smoking legs, smoking body, pretty face, beautiful eyes, blah, blah. I was, I, she had all the all my little notes. Yeah. She yeah. had all that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and but I'm like, I don't want to screw this up. And so we started dating and then we started dating. And then it was like, I didn't have the drama that I had with all my with other girlfriends. I'm like, we're not, we didn't break up and get back together. There was it was just we communicated and I'm thinking, maybe I'm not in love. So we broke up for a little bit. You know, I'm like, she's like, what? And I'm like, I need to know if I really love you. I'm mean, lucky that she took me back. Yeah. But I was like, because every every girlfriend I ever had, especially you know, when you're young, is just full of bullshit. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, take me home. You just all this this stuff to you're like, to, this is love. Look at is, it. Yeah, look at it. She, she's <laughs> so she's hard. Got to be special. She's <laughs> making me work so hard. And um, uh. but with Steph, it was just it was a it was seamless. It was like we could go to dinner, we could go places, we could do, we could have fun, we could travel, do all these different things, and it wasn't the stress of it all. So at first, I think, man, is this really what love is? And then mm-hmm. I found out that's really what love is, or it's is what that, it can be. Exactly, when you can sit and be quiet with somebody, you don't have to be like, so what are you thinking? What are you thinking? What are you thinking? You know? Yeah. It, it was it was a, it was a nice place to be. You know, people will see long relationships and and. Uh, you know, Laird and I, we haven't been together as long as you have, but pretty long, almost 25 years. And uh, people will say, oh, you know, what, what's the secret and, or what are the secrets? And, and uh, you know, I think there's a, a, the obvious like, oh, communication, mutual respect, all this stuff. But I also think that people just have chemistry. Yeah. I, I just think they have chemistry. And do you see things in your relationship where you go, you know, this is part of why we can navigate raising three children and probably going through highs and lows in work and in, you know, all the things that people go through in life. Like what are the things that, you know, keep surfacing that you go, not only the lessons, like this is really important, but these habits that we have or these practices that we have, this is what's why we're, we're able to navigate it. Well, it's like for me, I I always wanted to be the peacemaker when I was a kid, you know, between my parents and stuff, my sister would grab my dad. I grab my mom, and, and you, you know, you always try to entertain them and, and do something to stop the fight. Yeah. And so I, anytime that Steph and I get into a, a pretty good scuff, you know, and, and mm-hmm. we're pretty mad at each other, ninety nine percent of the time, I'm the first one to break to break the ice to come to to not to say sorry all the time, <laughs> but just to to open up doors of communication. Yeah. And the one thing that I really love about her is she's never because if she did, it would that we would have gotten divorced or broke up a long time ago it's ah see you're you're apologizing you're coming Mm -hmm. to me because you know you were wrong Mm -hmm. you know and she never does that she's she'll like because she's more of a hothead than me it takes she she snaps a lot quicker than me but once i get going i I stay in it a little bit and one of the problems is every time she gets mad i get the giggles and it it pisses her off more than anything it's like she gets mad and i start laughing she's like that's not funny. I'm like, I know it's not, but I just can't stop laughing. But that I think that's a major thing is being open to come back together. Because why are we fighting? I love you. You love me. And what's the end game? We're going to get a divorce or hate each other? No, you're my wife. You're my everything. I, I stood before God and confessed you're, you're, that, you're that. Why am I mad? Because you whatever said something or did something or whatever. It's, it's not, it's really not that important. And mm-hmm. so I'm typically the one that comes forward, but she's, she's there to welcome 
and not come back at me and go see. Yeah. Yeah. Were you able to do this when you were younger or is this learned? Um, my mom was, my mom was always pretty good about, you know, if you said, sorry, she was good. My dad, my dad was one of those guys that held onto it for a long time and Mm -hmm. it would ramp up and you basically give him space for 12 hours. And then, but then he would come back and just feel like crap, Yeah, you know, it just really like if he, when he loses cool and, you know, like he hit me a couple of times, nothing. I I deserved every time I got hit. Mm -hmm. Um, like the next day he would just like, he'd be in in tears drinking coffee, waiting for me to get up so he could apologize. Yeah. You know, but I'd be a dick and I wouldn't look at him. You'd make him pay a little longer. over there. My mom would be like, (laughs) talk to your dad. I'm like, fuck, what are you talking about? (laughs) It's so hard. Family's hard. It is. It is. But you know what though? Just the whole meaning of family is, they're the ones that'll pick you up when you're down. And that's what, that's what Steph has done. She's seen me at my highs and seen me at just some like gnarly lows, just like on the ground. So she, she entered your life though, when you were, it was happening for you. Mm -hmm. And then you, let's talk about transitioning. Win, win, win. I mean, dominate. And then there comes a time where your body or whatever, I, I don't know, everyone, every, all the athletes have their different reasons. What happens when you go, okay, this this chapter, this type of racing, because you continue to race, is finished now. I'm going to close the book on that. How how do you get to that uh, decision? So for me, it was it was made for me. I was I won the first five in 1989. I won the first five, I think, races. Got one second place, mm-hmm. and then I had a, a, a practice accident where another rider landed on me and broke and dislocated my, my wrist, which then introduced me to your distant relative Peppy. Uh-huh. Uh, oh yeah. That's right. <laughs> hey Peppy. Um, so from then it was trying to make it back. And then I honestly think it was cause I didn't really, I was really strong at the time and wait, uh, what year is this? 1989. Okay. So you're young. I was still young. So I was right. I just signed a three year contract with Honda. Yeah. I was at the top of my game doing everything great. Yeah. And that was just a slip between me and another rider. His wheel hit the back of my, of my uh, elbow and broke and dislocated my right wrist. So I struggled for two years trying to make it back. Never won a Supercross again. Won, uh, I think I won the national the year later there and I won the, the last 500 national, but I was never at the form that I was. And then with, I had weird things like my hand would let go and regrip and shoot me off the track. And so I had to quit right then. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just like, I immediately put all my energy into truck racing because I wanted to go, I'm not done. I want to get into this. And then that's such an up and down deal. It's not like motocross where if you're the strongest guy, you're going to get a ride. You're going to get this, you're going to get that. It's very, very political. So with her, she had to, she had to deal with that. And I'll never forget. We were down there with Pepe and he did the first fusion on my hand. Mm -hmm. So this was right when I retired. And uh, like 26, yeah, 26. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we're going through it. Like I had the surgery, you know, I got pins all on my arm. I'm in a big cast and, and I'm hungry. And I'm like, the only thing's open is Burger King across the street. So we're in the line at Burger King and I lose my shit. Like just like all of this emotion just comes screaming. I'm screaming and, and cursing the riders that are winning now and this and that. And I don't deserve this. And I, cause I really thought, you know, I was doing the right thing. You know, I was, I thought I was praising God. I was living a clean life. I was trying to, trying to be the right guy mm. and I just got smashed. And, and so she's just like, we'll be back for the food later. <laughs> it had to drive around Altamont Springs while I'm screaming and hollering. And then it's like, I really didn't even know where it was coming from. It's like, I was, I was kind of out of body a little bit because mm-hmm. I'm like, 
wow, where's, where does this all come from? But all the things that I was trying to be a really good guy and suppress all of my anger and everything, it came out. And so she had to witness that to see me at a completely vulnerable, just like at my weakest point. I mean, you could have killed me with a feather. It was, yeah. it was that. And she, and she never held that against me and always lifted me up. It's like, we'll be okay. Yeah. And that's where we've been. So, you know, I talk about it a lot because I have friends that are in sports or, you know, all the identity and trip that's wrapped up. I mean, you're, you're winning trophies at eight years old. Uh, you know, you, you were a champion your whole life, you know, as far as the world's definition of like, here's first place. Yeah, yeah good trophy. Here you go. Good job. Yeah. How do you transition? And then also, because when I, I only know you now and, um, you're, it's the, quite the opposite. Like you're happy to not see as you're you, the person, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're Rick or Ricky Johnson. Yeah. Um, and so going through it the first time, and that's very young, um, you know, 26. Do you transition out of that, that identity? Or do you say, okay, I'm going to redirect it into trucks. Like you talked about, yeah. or you say, okay, I'm just going to keep that identity. I'm just going to shift it. Right. Because like racing for me was my way out. You know, my dad was a house painter and stuff and he would take me painting and I hated painting, you know, because your dad's yelling at you to paint and you yeah, didn't it's brutal. Stay, you didn't stand the cabinets right or you didn't do this, didn't do that. So I was like, I don't want to be a painter. So I got to haul ass. So then when motorcycles yeah. ended, I'm like, okay, I want to do this step. So it's like Robbie Gordon actually had the right steps. He did off-road trucks. Then he got into GTU racing and GTO racing. And so I thought this is going to be the way I'm going to do it. So mm-hmm. I, I sweet-talked Chevrolet into giving me a shot, got into stadium trucks, and then wanted to go well. Then that ended. They just go, well, we're going to do something else. So we ended that, even though we had a phenomenal deal. And then mm-hmm. going to, went back and had a contract with Penske South and Rusty Wallace, hated hated the fact that the truck team was there and wanted to get rid of that. So I had a lot of these hurdles that, that you keep reinventing yourself. And so I did TV, I did stunts, I did schools. I've done, you know, just all these different things because I, I just, I can't sit. For one, I can't afford to just sit. I would love to, you know, sometimes I'd love to just have, you know, yeah. 14 million in the bank and just sit back and do nothing. But I didn't, I wasn't in the time that I could make that much money. It was a lot of money at the time, but absolutely not in today's standards. Yeah. So, so for me, it was just, just keep moving forward, keep moving forward. And I feel the same way though. What's awesome is that I still feel like that little kid with the nerves and, and the fears and everything every time I race because I don't want to lose. I just, I don't want to look bad. So I, so then I have to come back and then I really love the point when I just go, if I'm in the dust or if I got clear road or if it's raining on me or whatever it is, mm-hmm. just see every rock, see every bump, see every turn and just really let go of the past, let go of the future and just be really present because mm-hmm. it's hard to do that in your household with so many things going on. You know, it's great when you have some time, some quiet time with you and your wife or you and your kids or whatever the case may be, but typically life gets in the way. Yeah. But when you're racing. Yeah. That moment. That, that, that's the moment that you live for. You talked a lot about um, being able to see a line, you know, that you had that ability yep. to see the lines and, um, and now you, you're still in fast vehicles. Laird saw you at the Baja. Yep. And you know, and you're in those badass trucks. I mean, how fast are those trucks going? They go at, at like a, car, a top speed. Well, top I mean, speed is like a, 150, 150 miles I an mean, hour. But and typically, you, you don't get over 120 because you just you, there's a, oh that's it. Well, there's a there's something that's going to make you slow down, like a turn or a mm-hmm. bump or this or that. But we go across the dry lake bed sometimes 135, but that's rare. But these trucks, you live at 90 miles an hour. The new all-wheel drive, thousand horsepower, big block, mid engine. It's just it's crazy how good the vehicles are now. 
he was talking about the, I don't know how many miles of whoop de doos on that Baja 1000. Yeah. How many miles is it? It's like, well, the vehicle that him and Paul Hodge ran, it's, it's a lot longer. <laughs> I know, but he said, he goes, you watch your trucks go by and he goes, they're just flying across the yeah. top of it. And it took them, I don't know how many hours to get through. And it takes you guys like, you know, who knows, an hour to get Yeah, it takes it. us an hour to get down. It probably took them three and a half. Yeah, or more actually, yeah. I think. Well, and, well, the guys are doing, the guys that won that year in the Baja 1000 did it, and I think in 26 hours, it took Laird 40 yeah, over, over, over 46 40. and a half. Yeah, 46. Yeah. Which, and that's the, but that's why I gravitated towards him and Paul because they did it old school. Like they rode and then they drove and they were like, nobody does that. They don't? It's, hell no. <laughs> what you do is, is that you have teams of guys. Yeah. So they're fresh and then you put them in for the next one, the next oh, one. Yeah. They also pre-run and all different stuff. They didn't even, they didn't even know where the course was. They just go up and go, it's that way. If I, if tomorrow morning, if the sun comes up on the left, <laughs> not on the right. I'm going the right direction. And, and, but that's the other thing is that how they were fat adapted, what they were doing for hydration yeah. and all the different stuff. As I told you, I was, I was at 235 pounds or so at the time, yeah. a little butterball, but I was totally addicted to sugar. So I had goo blocks. I had, you know, uh, the everything, yeah. you know, sugar, 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 sugar. So I just, I kept the tank topped off all the time. And And we were talking about that where people get into, these positions where they start to orient their days towards like when they're supposed to eat. Oh, I totally And yeah. it's like, oh, well, if I get here and then I need to have dinner and all these things. And then we realize that's complete nonsense. Well, we have a lot of fuel, stored yeah. fuel in the tank. So I am interested. So you're, you just had a birth. Did you have a birthday recently? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So now you- um, 56. Yep. Okay. 56. And, uh, you know, I love how people love to put frames around it. I've seen it with myself and Laird, like, oh, you're older now. And, you know, you shouldn't do that or you can't do that, whatever. Um, but you've actually installed a whole bunch of new practices kind of in the last two or three years yep. in your self-care life. Maybe just share some of those and, and how it's going for you and what's really worked for you. Well, and, and you can identify with this because you are part of the 80s. Remember? Carbo loading. Oh yeah, bagels. give me some bagels and oh, pasta, oh, dude. I love that. I have a game tomorrow. I need a carbo load pasta tonight. Pasta yeah. all that stuff. And now you find out that was wrong. Oh like, yeah, basically. It's and the so, devil. For, so for me, I felt like that. I felt like if, I, if I'm hungry, it, it honestly made me feel like I'm dying. Like a little piece of me is dying, <laughs> and I would get like, you know, my glycogen levels would drop, and mm -hmm. I would have to eat this and blah blah blah. And I'm like. I started thinking about it. So talking, I was on Paul Hodge from, from Larry's Superfood. I would call him every day. And, and like the, the people in the office would go, you know, he doesn't take anybody's calls because I'm like, okay, I'm in the ice bath. How long should I stay in here? And and I, and because how it started was Steph bought some of the Superfood creamer because mm -hmm. she's trying to help me lose weight and, and this and that and um, try different things. And so I'm like, started looking at it, then talking to Paul, they're doing the cold therapy, they're doing the heat therapy, then mm -hmm. then changing my diet and getting fat adapted. Like that was a that was a hard thing. Cause I just came back from that race and to get off sugar, oh man, talk about the hangover weeks. The hangover and just feeling like crap. Yeah. And uh, but then once I did it, man, I melted fat. Like I went down to 195 and I haven't been 195 since I retired motorcycles. You know, mm -hmm. I was raised at 180, 185. But so I started looking at that. Then I started doing more things. And then when I got injured after that race, I it, I got hit by my teammate, my ex-teammate, Bryce Menzies. He didn't mean to, yeah. but he hit me in the back going 120. I was going 80 and it blew a seven centimeter chunk of disc. So I had, after I had my partial knee replacement. Why'd like you get a partial? 
They said that I'm always because, curious. I don't know. Well, they said because it was my kneecap was just bone to bone, and so was the tip of my femur. Mm-hmm. And then he says, You're too active. I don't want to do it because you're going to get it redone. And then we have to trim seven millimeters off and blah, blah, blah. I kind of wish they did because I have certain points that are getting me. But on the other hand, certain things, I'm awesome. So okay. it's never the same. I mean, it says me who has the full. That's Ex- why I ask. Because exactly. I just think. What are you trying to give me knee envy? No, I'm, I'm really just always. Half. Yeah, well, it's like, but you could say you still have half the real stuff. So, so you get you have the sight, and then you have a lot of nerve, and yeah. Right? So I had some sciatic problems and stuff like that. So I was I was laying around quite a bit, and when I did that, I, I did a lot of reading. Not not reading. I watched a lot of stuff, like tons of YouTube videos on all the stuff that you guys have done, mm-hmm. uh, just everything. And then Wim Hof, and then the Oxygen Advantage, Patrick mm-hmm. McCowan, and mm-hmm. and learning about it's not just about. <gasps> It's not just about taking air in, it's about exhaling. Because I had a plan when I raced motocross, I worked with a breathing coach named Ian Johnson. He wrote wrote a book called Breath Play. Mm -hmm. So I I knew about the exhaling and having certain patterns and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But through that, after after Laird and I talked, because, you know, because Laird is just such a sweet guy when you have him for that moment, but you're like, you know, because he's like, here's my number, call me. And I'm like, eh do you really mean that? Or are you just saying that, you know? And he's like, no, call me. Cause, cause like when I said, I go, do you remember me? He's like, uh, yeah. I'm like, you don't remember. He's like, no, I remember. I was at Hawaii, Aloha stadium with Jerry Lopez. You were doing this, you were doing that. You were leading the race. You pointed at me, blah, blah, blah. And he, he's like, nail I'm like, well, he remembers me. And so I would call him and Paul and I would send him texts. Oh, look, I'm in the ice doing this, doing that. And they would just shoot out little encouragements and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then I started changing my diet and getting rid of the carbs and then doing this and doing that. Then I'm like, okay, let's try intermittent fasting. You know, not being afraid to try different things. And then once I made it, once I did a whole like 28 hour or 24 hour fast, like mm-hmm. the first time I was like, yeah, I did it. Yeah. And that, and then I started realizing we're not designed to eat all the time. Like if we were cave woman and cave man, there's a rabbit, there's some berries, there's some this, there's some that. And so don't be such a fanatic about it. And so that's what helped me. And in, in a lot of it, and I always say that it starts first thing in the morning with your cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And once I switched to, because I was a Starbucks aholic and I didn't I didn't get coffee. No, I got the oh, yeah, caramel the, macchiato of course, it's with yummy. The extra whipped cream. So yummy. <laughs> Who wouldn't? And so I, that was my problem. And so, well, it's that sugar setup. That's all, whatever yeah. it is it hits you and you feel it. But then what's funny is that once you quit sugar and you have it back, you realize the poison it is. Cause like when I had a, a regular, like whatever latte or whatever one time, mm-hmm. and I took like a, a big gulp of it and the, it was so sweet. It almost made me throw up. And then like my head just like, Oh, like, yeah. like I'm going, man, this is, this can't be good for me. So that's what helped me transform quite a bit on my diet. It's amazing. I mean, I, I'm always, I think it's really an inspiring thing to share because I think people do buy into, well, I'm at this certain time in my life or I'm this certain age, so I'm going to just be like that because everyone around me. And I just, you know, it's that reminder of like, if we participate and we get informed and and we have people that we can reach out to, because I think we all need that support, um, we can feel mostly how we want. I mean, obviously there's unforeseen things happen, like, you know, your friend hitting you at 120 miles an hour. So you got to navigate injuries and things like that. But I think it's a really important thing for people not to just buy into that and say, well, I'm 56. So, you know. Well, and that's the thing is try. And like, I go back to the the Apollo Creed and Rocky Balboa. There is no tomorrow. And that I, I, I felt, I'm like, I'm going to eat like crap today and I'm going to start my diet tomorrow. And, yeah. and, and that, that doesn't work. 
that, that, that just, that never works. Yeah. And, and what I enjoy now is in, this is not a sponsored plug or anything like that, but your XPT videos, your breathing videos, mm-hmm. the little tips and stuff like that, that I can listen to and I can go, I'm going to try that and try that. Just don't be afraid to try. Don't just, don't think the perfect scenario is never going to rise. Like if you watch Laird, he still limps his, his one ankle's oh, flat because it's smashed. It's, you know I mean? He's his whole, the whole time I've known him, he's walks like that. Right. And, but that never stops him. Like same thing in his movie. He couldn't stand up straight, but that's when he, yeah. surf the biggest waves in the world, yeah. you know? So you, you, you just got to go, I, I got to make it work. And so for me, I find that a lot of my, my pains and angs or aches are emotional stuff. Like my wrist is very much an emotional thing. And so, you know, I got you some little green sticks down there, but yeah. I started messing around with those and now I've gotten grip strength back. And I'm realizing that a lot of the, the pain and the bone spurs and all the different stuff a lot of it is is emotional things I'm hanging on to because I had to let go of my my motocross career. Yeah. And so now, like, if I sit here, it doesn't hurt a bit. You know, if I squeeze, it really doesn't hurt. Now, if I ride a motorcycle, it hurts a little bit, but I was able to gain some strength back and stuff like that. So that's part of the Dr. Sarno healing back pain and how, you know, how do you hurt yourself by not hurting yourself? And that's what made me think about that, so. Yeah. Do you, because you were saying when you were a kid, you know, that you had this, you probably also had an idea about your life. You know, I think we get callings. Do you have a place where you have had made peace with it, where you go, hey, I, I thought I was probably going to race longer, but it just, I just uh, changed the story. And because I'm, I'm very fascinated by people that are as good at what they do as you are and have been, like where you, are you able to put that in a place? Because that's actually not different than even athletes who they just kind of age out of sports or whatever. Are you able to go like, oh, I have a relationship with that and I understand it and I'm okay with it? Or do you ever think back like, oh man, an extra two or three or four or five years or does that ever- I let go of that. I completely let go of that. And Did you have to actively do that or was it just through time and, and, and building a rich life that you could let go of it? I, it still pisses me off when I go to a race and the, the new generation doesn't recognize you. I don't want, I don't expect anybody to kiss my ass. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm saying this is a real dialogue. Like, that's right. what I mean. Like, if you... Like, like and, and you want to see me flare up is just watch me get disrespected by somebody. I'm, I'm like, you little punk, I'll smash you. You know what I mean? I, you, you don't, and I don't, you go back to that, like Mike Tyson said, I don't want to be that ugly guy, but yeah. when we talked about the shadow personality and stuff like that. If I get challenged, I don't mind going. Yeah. I I'd rather hug you than punch you. Yeah. Be honest with you. I'd, I'd rather, because if you hug me, I'll hug you harder. You know, yeah. if you punch me, I'll try to punch you harder. Probably not. But, but so that, that still gets me a little bit because it's like, I worked hard to elevate the sport and mm-hmm. do that. And just to like get not even acknowledged from just not even like, Hey, RJ or whatever. Yeah. I don't expect money. I don't expect praise. I don't just, just acknowledgement, you know, because of the guys before me, the Marty Smith, the, the uh, Brock Glover, Bob Hanna, Roger DeCoster, Joel Robert. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. Those guys made a sport so I could be a high school dropout, mm-hmm. make a make a very, very good living, travel the world, get to go to see President Reagan in the White House in 1987. I mean, who gets to do that? It's because these guys made that sacrifice. And so it does, it, it still hurts my feelings when I go and I, and I don't get any respect. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want, like I said, I don't expect to be put on a pedestal, yeah. but when I get zero respect, it, it, it bums me out a little bit. But as far as if I could have, should have, yeah. that's gone. But it, it's not with your fans. 
Like people come up to me and they're just like, man, if you wouldn't have gotten hurt, no one would ever, ever touched your records. I'm like, well, guess what? I did. You know, yeah. and what would have happened if David Bailey didn't get hurt? What would have happened if, yeah. the, if, if Johnny O'Mara didn't get hurt? Jeff Ward would have qualified for that Supercross. I mean, there's there's too many coulda, shoulda, wouldas. Especially in sports like that. Exactly. I mean, it, it, you're you're on, you're on a fine razor's yeah. edge the whole time. And and so I I look back and go, I got to do some cool shit and travel around and do some cool things. And I was mm-hmm. the dumb kid in school. You know, the one, the one that people said it wouldn't amount to anything. You know, I think it's interesting. Laird, when he was young, same thing. They were like, oh, he's not, he doesn't, they tried to teach him to read a certain way. They were working on a new technique and it didn't work well. And then they told him when he was very young, like, oh, you, you can't read well. Right. And to this day, and this is somebody who, when he reads something, especially, you know, like all of us, if he's interested, he'll never forget it. Right. Um, has a hang up, like really has a thing because someone told him so long ago, oh, you're not good at this. Right. Um, or believing, oh, I'm the dumb kid because you speak a different language. Yep. You learn a different way. It's really important that we don't, life is hard and we have to work hard. So I don't think it's about making everything soft for everybody, yep. but I think it is about like really being careful to try to pay attention to the individual person. I know it's hard to do, but it's like, hey, cause there's so many, so many people I know have had that same narrative and they're brilliant. Yeah. You find your way. And that's, the, but the generation is different now. So now it's like, oh, he's artistic. He's this, he's that. Let's, yeah. let's, let's praise him for his special thing. Yeah. Back then it was, you couldn't read and, and do the math the way they wanted to do it and all yeah. that other stuff. You got labeled as a dumb kid. And that, yeah. oh, that is, that is horrifying because you're afraid of being exposed of the of who and then then you start to believe it and then then a lot of times that's where you hear like Arnold Schwarzenegger channeled himself in in bodybuilding and Laird and surfing and stuff mm-hmm. like that and how he went went in the ocean and, and got rewarded. I I love that st- statement that he says is that when he's on land he was punished and things were wrong but every time he went out there if if he was fair to the ocean the ocean was fair to him. You know, if you treat the ocean right, you get great waves, you do this, you act like an asshole, you do this, you that, you're going to get crushed, you're going to get held under, blah, blah. And I found I, that was my similar thing with riding. If I go out there and I do the work and I do the dil- diligent things and I practice my starts, I win the race, I, you know, I got mm-hmm. the pretty girl. You, did. you definitely. <laughs> I, and, and, I, and I got to, to travel the world. So, but, but still, you have to come back to land. And I'm mm-hmm. using Larry's terminology. You have to come back to land and then someone's going to, you know, like I'll still, I'll still this day, I'll text something and I'll type it the wrong way. And then my kids are like, dad, you spelt it wrong. Or, you know, I have a, a great friend, Scott Cox. And I went to say, so stoked to be on this commercial. And I typed it and I put CK. So it's like stocked, Yeah, you know? And he goes, <laughs> RJ, it's stoked, not stocked. I'm like, Oh, go back and adjust my Facebook uh, thing. Yeah. But I don't, it's like, I don't even think like I, I didn't, I was just pounding away and I, and it yeah. ca- came up, you know, I probably misspelled it because my fat fingers, and it auto-corrected and, but anyhow, yeah. so, so what I'm saying is I got people looking out for me because like Cassie's quick. So she's on notification every time I post something. Yeah. But we all need people yeah. to look out for us. <laughs> I don't care if we have a PhD in, in uh, literature. Yeah. It's like, we all need, you know, that's what we're doing in life, you know? Yeah. Um, what has scared you? What has scared me a lot? My dad says something to me and he thought he was saying the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, you know, when, Remember when you heard when you were a little kid, oh, the sun's getting closer to the earth and eventually it's going to explode and do this and do that. Mm-hmm. And so I came home from school and I was probably about 10 years old. And, and he goes, I said, dad, I said, I'm worried about the end of the world. He goes, what? 
I mean, yeah, someone told me that the sun's getting close to the earth. Mm-hmm. He goes, and he thought he was doing the right thing. He goes, you're going to be dead and gone. Before, I mean, by a million years before that ever happens. And I went, <laughs> oh, shit. I'm going to be dead and gone. Like, then I literally, like, it scared me. I'm like, I'm going to die. Like, he's right. I'm going to die. And so mm-hmm. my mom pulled me aside and I would tell her, you know, like I would cry going to bed and stuff like that. I'm like, I don't want to die. Yeah. You know? And she just says, uh, you know, she had a problem with it when she was a kid. And her, and her mom said, her grandma said to her, a soul afraid of dying never lives. And so she, my mom being my mom, she, she pulls me aside and she says, so I want you to think about this, right? She goes, you ride motorcycles, right? Yeah. So yeah. She's like, you love riding motorcycles, right? I'm like, yeah. She goes, you've fallen really hard and hurt yourself. And I said, yeah. She goes, do you think you're never going to fall again? I'm like, no, I'm going to fall again. She goes, but you still race hard. Why don't you stop racing fast? I go, because I don't want to lose. She goes, there you go. That's life. Yeah. You know, you, you can't, you can't wait and hesitate for, for something bad to happen. Like death, like it's one life. You can't, I can't sit and worry about life like this damn coronavirus and all this shit going on. I'm not going to hide from it. You know, um, I, now granted, I, I don't need to go run around and, yeah. you know, whatever, but protect myself, do what I can just to stay in the way. So, so that was my biggest fear. And then my other, other fears than that was just losing. Like I didn't want to look bad. Like I grew up in a, in a, in a town where there was so many fast guys, like Brock Lover on the sheen, Scott Burnworth and, and different guys. And so all of us, we had similar friends. Like we had like, there was RJ fans, there were Brock mm-hmm. fans, this and that. And I didn't want their buddies to razz my buddy. You know, I mean, it, would, it becomes that petty. Yeah. Well, but it's very I'd, tribal. Right. And I, but I, and I don't want, I want Honda. That was my sponsor mm-hmm. to be the number one. I want to be the best tire. I want to be, I want to be the best. And I didn't want it to let people down. So, so the fear of losing was my biggest thing. And now when you're in a truck and you're going to start a race, that's not in the back of your head. Yes. What? Well, it, it is, but a different realm. So like for this past weekend, for instance, uh, Mike Osborne, who we drove for, you know, he, he was up to, he qualified 12th, was up to seventh, got a flat, went back. Mm-hmm. I got in the truck and I sat in the dust. I was getting frustrated because I, I know I'm faster than these guys and I want to pass them, but I don't want to take the chance because if I get another flat, there's more guys going to pass me, blah, blah, blah. So this thing. So I have to constantly tell myself, just do the best that you can this second, mm-hmm. not five seconds. Don't think about the finish. Don't think about that. Because I always tell people I've had some of the biggest failures when I call it counting my money, meaning what am I going to say on the podium and all this different stuff and then crash. And then the, the, like when you're going around in a circle, you're thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. The super cross <laughs> and stuff. You're thinking about, well, what am I going to say? Who am I going to thank? I got to make sure I, you know, and, and you're still racing. Yeah. And then you crash and you look like a complete jerk. <laughs> so, yeah. So for me, it, it's just, I'm not so worried about looking bad. I just don't want to let the team down. You know, Mike put a lot of money into it yeah, it's and, and all the different stuff. And, and so I want to, I want to make sure that I put my best foot forward. So he's like excited to keep me on the team. Not just like, Oh God, this asshole came and tore my shit up and now we're done. Yeah. So yeah, I still fear losing. And then what about with the family? Do you ever have a, or you, you know, like yeah. when you watch your kids race or think about their lives or is there something that you've learned from racing that also helps you manage the everyday things that can make us afraid uh, better. Did you develop tools that helped you? Yeah, is that worrying about the finish is not going to, is not going to, now, I, but I do believe in visualization and, okay. and, and it's taking some time. Like I, like at my best time in racing, I would stop and visualize. I didn't have the attention span to do the whole 20 laps, but I would visualize getting the start 
exactly my best start. Visualize coming around the first turn first, coming around, getting the white flag, waving at the crowd, doing this, and then how it felt to do that 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 last that last lap and win the race, then be embraced by my, my mechanic and feel the podium under my feet. And not that it was like, ooh, you know, see it, just believe it, receive it, whatever. Yeah. It wasn't like that, but it was like I went into the race with a more positive feeling than Oh God! Hope I don't get my ass kicked. I, I went in with it with a good feeling, and then whatever happens, then you just you you make it make it happen. So for me, is that just not holding on too tight? And racers have the shortest memories. I mean, because you have to. You're like over the bars, almost crash, and then it's like as soon as you land, if you're not on your ass, you got to go, and you have to let go of it. Otherwise, you're gonna you're just gonna just knot yourself up in, into a hole. So the racing has has been a great metaphor for me in life. What's your, what's your mom's, what did she write on that card for you? Jump and the net will appear. <laughs> Ricky Johnson. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.